From your perspective, what inhibits or what would prevent someone from doing good? The number one thing we saw, honestly, for people of any age, it wasn't, I don't have money. It wasn't, I don't want to do anything. It was just, I don't know what to do. Think about the day after the Supreme Court announcement about Roe v. Wade. Obviously, some people were very happy. Some people were furious. The furious people were texting each other saying, I'm gutted. What do I do? It's the same with young people. I see an injustice. I want to do something, but what do I do? And how do I make sure that the thing that I do is impactful and not just a flash in the pan or even worse, doesn't, doesn't go in the other direction. And so that's where do something really stepped in. And I feel like our goal was two things. One is to create a movement. So you felt like you were joining something because so often we see people making change because they feel like they're part of something bigger and create that community. But then two, once you want to do something, give people super concrete, specific things that they can do that will make a real impact and do something. We'll do that verification. Welcome to Worthy for 30, a podcast hosted by Eric Tash. Eric is a brand marketer who spent time in both the startup and corporate worlds throughout his career. He's come across remarkable leaders who set clear examples for how to do good and give back. Eric sits down with some of the most sought after entrepreneurs and C-suite executives to discuss how they're able to unlock deeper meaning in their work by infusing their core fundamental values. Worthy for 30, where doing good and doing well meet. Welcome back to another episode of Worthy for 30. I'm your host, Eric Tash. With me today is a friend, a colleague, Happy to have her on the show, Aria Finger, who is the Chief of Staff for Reed Hoffman. Welcome to the show, Aria. Thanks so much. So great to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Again, I appreciate your time. You have an incredible story, incredible career progression. But before we get into that, Aria, something caught my eye as I was getting ready for our conversation. Past couple of days, past couple of weeks, every time I open up LinkedIn, I'm seeing layoffs. I'm seeing, again, layoffs, tech downturn. And what was funny is when I went on your Twitter feed, the first thing I saw back in February was this pinned tweet that really hit me between the eyes. And it probably hit a lot of people who are listening between the eyes is we're so quick to congratulate the person who gets a great job at the promotion, but we're not so quick when someone is in a uh, unfortunate situation, unfortunate circumstance. And I'd love for you to offer your perspective, because I again, you're not, you're also probably seeing the same things that I'm seeing on LinkedIn or on Twitter with, again, this economic downturn. Can you just provide some context or some perspective on how you've helped people who are in, again, an unfortunate juncture in their career? Yeah, absolutely. So the tweet you're talking about is my old board member from Do Something, David Brinker. He's the one who told me that. He said, everyone is calling you when you're the way on the way up. No one is giving you a call when you just lost the job or got laid off or whatever it might be. And that's when you need the help. And I'd say that one thing that I've seen change both sort of interpersonally, but also on LinkedIn is that people are posting about layoffs. So they're raising their hand and saying, I was one of the 1,000 folks who got laid off from Shopify or Robinhood or whoever it might be. And so one, I think that's just a hugely positive thing. There's no shame. This is no reflection on you. And you need to raise your hand so that other people can figure out how to help you. And so I think that's also why some people don't reach out because they just don't know. Why did they change a job? What's going on with them? Do they want me to reach out? So I just think the sort of like transparency and like it takes a village mentality is so good. But the other thing I'll say is I was, I had a lot of inbound on LinkedIn about chief of staff roles. 
And I am perfectly happy in my role. I'm not going anywhere. But I figured there must be so many other people out there who want to become a chief of staff. And so I posted just like, hey, I have a few roles. Anyone want one? DM me. And I had over 50 people that I had never met DM me within 25 minutes. And so it just shows you that there's this role that doesn't mean anything to me that I could easily pass along to someone else. It took me five minutes to create a Google form. And now I send a note out to that group whenever I have a chief of staff opportunity across my desk. So I would just say it doesn't take that much time and effort to be enormously helpful to other folks. So it's just that that, that quick, again, you're not going, again, so out of your way. You're just posting just a notification. Hey, broadcasting, I love my job. I'm getting inbound requests for chief of staff roles. Anyone interested? And again, it's that simple, that simple interaction, right? That simple post that means the world of difference to the person who's seeing it. They're like, oh my goodness, I didn't, I did not know that these jobs are available. So you're setting the example, which, which is great for other people to take notice and to say, hey, again, if I'm if this comes around to me, if there are opportunities that I can share and enlighten someone else's day or week by just simply, again, reaching out or, or posting, again, it's going to make a world of difference for that person who's seeing it, which again, I think it's great because again, it takes a village. We're all in this together. Absolutely. Excellent. So shifting gears, when I met Aria, I met her through the ANA, the Association of National Advertisers, ANA Masters, great, incredible conference that the ANA puts out once a year. And at the time, you were the CEO of Do Something. Can you give the listeners an idea of Do Something and its mission? Sure. So Do Something is one of the largest organizations in the world, actually, for young people and social change. So our whole goal was to talk to young people. And we said young people were approximately 13 to 25 year olds, which made me feel old on a regular basis. But our whole goal was to have young people find a cause that they're passionate about and then give them super easy ways to take action. But just like you were talking about with the LinkedIn and passing along a job, making change and getting started in social change, if you're 13, 14, 15, should be so easy. We should make it super easy to get people hooked on the idea that you can improve your town, your community, your school, then your state, then your country. And so that's what we tried to do. We wanted to be that on-ramp to a lifelong commitment to improving the world. Excellent. So I saw that you started, what was it, in 2000, 2005 and then through 2020. So you started as at the ground floor or the entry level, and then you worked your way through the ranks, your last position as CEO. And over that time, you were able to grow that the those young people, those 13 to 25-year-olds to 5.5 million volunteers, which is pretty extraordinary. How'd you do that? How'd you, again, it's that social impact, but what were some of those, not incentives, but methods of getting those 13 to 25 year olds excited and involved that they wanted to, and they were compelled to volunteer for specific causes? So we really saw an opportunity for do something to be a scale play. There's so many great local organizations who are doing great local work that honestly we couldn't do, but we saw the power of technology to reach people at scale. And I'd say there's a few insights that got us there. One was just the power of technology. So we, it sounds funny now in 2022, but we were a super early adopter of text messaging. And so before anyone else was text messaging, 
13, 14 and 15 year olds were. And so we set up a text messaging program. And when I left, we were texting over 3 million young people every Tuesday. And it's just such an intimate medium. And we're texting young people and they're texting back and then we're texting back and giving them opportunities. And so you really were creating a relationship. And that's what this is all about is creating relationships and feeling like you're part of a community. And so I think another thing that we did early is, as opposed to the traditional celebrity, we worked with creators and YouTubers and folks with now TikTok followings. And those were the people who were speaking directly to young people, feeling like they were their friends, feeling like they were in it with them. They were doing our campaigns and the young people could do them right along with them. So again, it was all about creating this community and these relationships that were so strong. Excellent. And and so those, that community, that, that sense of being, the sense of belongingness, making that impact. Once that campaign was over, how did you pr- prolong that need to, again, to be a visible or impactful member of a specific community? So we tried to figure out, are you someone who is a, I'm a climate warrior. I only want to do environmental campaigns. That's what I'm excited about. So that when one environmental campaign would end, we would say, hey, you just finished this incredible campaign. Try this other. Some people, they didn't have a specific cause they wanted to focus on, but they loved in-person events. So once one campaign ended that was all about in-person interaction, we would feed them another campaign that was also about in-person interaction. And so we tried as much as possible to use data and technology to really figure out how we could serve up the best campaigns, the best causes, the best opportunities to young people, also at the right time. We know that there's times of year when young people are going to be doing more or less, and we want to be respectful of that. Excellent. And in terms of those causes, I think I heard from one of your past talks or presentations, was it 250 or 275 causes at any given time that do something was involved with? How was, is that, okay, I just want to make sure I I got the number correct. So 275, when you started in 2005, how many causes were, how many active causes was do something behind? So I still remember when I joined in 2005, we were trying to, this was the goal for the year, to have one campaign a month. So that would have been 12 cause campaigns. And we failed. I I think we only launched seven or eight. And then once the campaign was over, we took all the information off the website. So at any given time, there was like two things you could do, which like just doesn't work in this era of abundance and choice. And we, again, like thinking about behavioral psychology, there are some people who are searchers and they want to look at all 270 campaigns and figure out which one is the perfect one for them. There are other people who are joiners and those folks, sure, they care about racial justice or the environment or homelessness, but they want to do the campaign that everyone else is doing because they want to feel part of something bigger than themselves. So for mm-hmm. those people, we would serve them up the most popular campaign of the day, and then that would be self-reinforcing. And then those campaigns would turn into super campaigns with 100,000, 200,000 young people activating around them. Holy smokes. That's tremendous. And speaking of social impact, and again, when, I, when you're talking, I feel the passion through, through the microphone, through my, ear, my, my headphones. Was there an inflection point? Like you, you went to college, you graduated, and you said to yourself, Aria, I want to do something where I'm making a visible impact on this world. And the reason why I asked that, because in my previous conversation, I had uh, Lori Keith of the Ad Council. After she graduated college, she spent a couple of years at ad agencies. And at the same time, she was volunteering. And she said, how can I combine my passion for media and advertising with social good? Did you go through a similar sort of 
I don't know if it's a formal, informal process of trying to figure out what your personal values are and making sure whatever you do in life, that company or organizations, mores, again, align with your personal values. First of all, Lori Keith is phenomenal. So I'm so happy you had her on the pod. That's a great conversation. But my, I'd say my evolution was actually different. It's like I had known from a very young age that sort of social change and impact was going to be a part of what I was doing. My mom was a teacher. My dad protested the Vietnam War and had was always talking about prison and criminal justice reform. And so that sort of ethos was like ever present in my household. And so I'd say that no one was surprised when I decided to go to a not-for-profit after college. I had been an econ major and I wanted to prove everyone wrong that not-for-profits could be efficient and effective and market-driven. And that's not to say that you can only make change in the nonprofit world. I think you can make change in any sector, but I certainly wanted to try it out and bring my numeracy skills and my economic skills and my business skills mm. to the not-for-profit setting. Gotcha. So it's th- through the early aughts through, and then through college and then after college, you figured out, okay, again, something that has social impact or social good. Again, you have that e-com background so to, to combine those two. From there, just try, trying to, to articulate when you, again, when you f- first joined and then through through CEO, through your CEO, again, the, the, up to that 275 campaigns by the time you left, were there any campaigns that, that stood out to you that, again, that, that exceeded expectations? And by exceeding expectations, you saw visible or, or concrete impact that it had on the people that were involved and the communities that were involved. But again, it's self-perpetuated without the involvement to do something. Yeah. So picking a favorite campaign is picking your favorite child. Although I do have a favorite child today. Two of them are being jerks. It's not so (laughs) difficult. One of the the campaigns that I really loved and saw self-perpetuate was a campaign we launched called Sincerely Us. And we launched it in response to rising Islamophobia across the country. And we didn't see that many national campaigns addressing this issue and certainly not campaigns led by young people. And what Sincerely Us was, it was a campaign around Ramadan, where we asked our young people to create happy Ramadan cards, send them to do something, and then we would send them. And the goal was to every single mosque in America. And the beautiful thing about this campaign was that it affected so many different groups in positive ways. So Do Something members that were Muslim wrote to us and said, oh my God, I feel seen. Like this organization that I know and love is doing a campaign that speaks to me. Our Do Something members that weren't Muslim or didn't know anything about Islam were learning about that religion, were learning about religious tolerance, were creating these beautiful handmade Happy Ramadan cards. And so both enriching themselves, but also feeling like they were doing something good to give back. And then in the end, we had like over 50,000 cards and we sent a package of cards to every single mosque in the United States. And the amazing thing was, is that when these mosques received these like beautiful handmade cards from teenagers... They hung them up on their bulletin boards. I went into a mosque just in Flatiron in New York City, and I saw do something cards hung up on their bulletin board. And so that was just a beautiful thing to see this idea spread across the country. And then you talk about paying it forward and continuing. Mm -hmm. Well, that Christmas at the do something office, we actually got dozens of packages of Merry Christmas cards back from mosques across the country who were celebrating another religion as well. And so it was really fun to see this interplay 
whether you were Muslim or Christian or atheist, it didn't matter. It was about mm -hmm. respecting other people's traditions and learning. And that was just a, a beautiful feel good campaign. That's, that's excellent. Because again, you're drawing awareness. There's a lot of misinformation. We live in the social media world where if someone says something about somebody or some group and it's wrong, it's off base, it's, it's, it's wrong, wrong in the sense that it can cause malice or, or violence against that group. Is there any data that, that correlate, that correlated, okay, what you did with this ascending those Ramadan cards to all the mosques across America with re perhaps reducing any sort of violence or, or racism towards the Muslim community in the United States? What we did for all of our campaigns was, listen, we couldn't run a randomized control trial, but mm -hmm. we could do pre and post surveys. And so for as many campaigns as we possibly could, we tried to do pre and post surveys with folks' attitudes towards different groups, how likely they were to befriend someone of a different religion, how even just how familiar they were with Islam and the main. And so we were able to see double digit changes on all those positive indicators, knowing that this was a worthwhile campaign. And the other good thing is we also use that as an on-ramp. So we wanted that individual campaign to be successful, but we also wanted people to have a positive experience so we could on-ramp them to bigger, better, more sophisticated campaigns down the road. Because we'd always, the, one campaign is great, but mm -hmm. if it's just a one-off, that's not going to be successful for changing a generation. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, I totally understand it. And you're just building on that. From your perspective, what inhibits or what would prevent someone from doing good? The number one thing we saw, honestly, for people of any age, it wasn't, I don't have money. It wasn't, I don't want to do anything. It was just, I don't know what to do. Think about the day after the Supreme Court announcement about Roe v. Wade. Obviously, some people were very happy. Some people were furious. The furious people were texting each other saying, I'm gutted. What do I do? It's the same with young people. I see an injustice. I want to do something, but what do I do? And how do I make sure that the thing that I do is impactful and not just a flash in the pan or even worse, doesn't, doesn't go in the other direction. And so that's where do something really stepped in. And I feel like our goal was two things. What do I do? It's the same with young people. I see an injustice. I want to do something, but what do I do? And how do I make sure that the thing that I do is impactful? And not just a flash in the pan or even worse, doesn't doesn't go in the other direction. And so that's where do something really stepped in. And I feel like our goal was two things. One is to create a movement so you felt like you were joining something. Because so often we see people making change because they feel like they're part of something bigger and create that community. But then two, once you want to do something, give people super concrete, specific things that they can do that will make a real impact and do something. We'll do that verification so you know that if I'm activating with you, I'm actually making a difference in my community. Uh, that's tremendous is, again, the clear, the clarity and the potential outcome of what that action is going to do for that specific cause is tremendous. Because again, we, again, we live in this digital, social, we're overwhelmed with all these different messages from brands, from friends, from colleagues, what have you. And there's just not clarity. There's no, okay, what should I do? You're telling me something, but what should I do about what you're telling me? And, and again, do something is providing that, that game plan for that volunteer of what they what the cause is and what they need to do to have that material or that visible impact. So switching gears a little bit. So you I do something for about 15 years. You, and when I reached out to you, you said I've left do something. I'm now working with Reed Hoffman as his chief of staff. How for our understanding for mine and also for the listeners, how are you bringing that that social good or that social impact background to your work with Reed Hoffman? 
Yeah, absolutely. It was really interesting when I first talked to Reed about the role. Of course, I was worried. Reed is a legendary startup founder, investor. And I was like, Reed, I know something about startups. I grew do something. I know something about technology. I'm not an investor. I don't have a background in VC. But the beautiful thing was Reed's you know, whole goal for his life, whether it's his for-profit work, his not-for-profit work, his political work, is to reduce suffering and to improve the world. Like, how do I make the world better for humanity? So no matter what he's doing, deploying capital in a social impact way, in a for-profit way, he is always thinking about how to make the world a better place. And so I've been so privileged now through my work with Reed to join the boards of nonprofits, to sit in on the many the many boards that he is on, both not-for-profit and for-profit. And so it was just great to be aligned with someone whose values I so closely shared, because that's what it's all about. If you don't respect someone, if you don't share their values, it's really hard to work so closely together. So it was just fantastic that he had that foundation already. And then I'm just so lucky to work with the many not-for-profits that he, that he supports. Oh, excellent, excellent. Speaking of one of those causes that's near and dear to you, as again, preparing for our conversation, is criminal justice reform and reducing recidivism of people who've been in prison or been in the prison system here in the US and making sure that they don't go back. What are some of those steps or initiatives, whether do something Reed Hoffman or just ARIA outside work, that you've been working on to ensure there is, well, criminal justice reform and recidivism, but I think taking a step back, if you can just paint the picture for us on why this issue is so important or should be so important for the people who are listening. Yeah. So criminal justice reform has truly been a cause that I've been passionate about for 25 years. I think I, I got that from, from my parents. And one of the main reasons that it's so important to me is just the utter discrimination and racial injustice that the criminal justice system is rife with. You are more likely to be incarcerated if you are African-American or Hispanic for the same crimes as white people. You are more likely to get the death penalty if you are a person of color than if you are white. And so just looking at our society, it's like, how can we live? in a society and we have this criminal justice system that is so rife with discrimination. And not to mention that our criminal justice system should be about rehabilitation. It should be about folks getting back to their lives, getting back to their families, getting back to economic opportunity. And too often in the United States, when you enter the criminal justice system, it's really hard to get out of it because of what might be on your record or because of prohibitions about what job you can get, where you can live, all of the bureaucracy that comes along with it. So it just, my whole life, it struck me as enormously unfair. And I think the first thing that got me really interested in the criminal justice system was the Innocence Project. Because the thing that seems ultimately unfair is when we incarcerate folks who are innocent, who didn't commit the crime. But once you get more involved in the Innocence Project, that's not the only problem. That people who actually have committed these crimes, there are still huge injustices and huge problems with this system. And so anyone who's known me for any amount of time knows that this is a cause that I'm truly passionate about. And we were able to run a few small campaigns that do something and now, actually, with my work with Reed, I'm able to dig much more deeply into this. And I'm happy to go into that if interested. But I know I just talked for a while about criminal justice. No, it's tremendously interesting. And the, why it's interesting to me, so a couple of years ago, a friend recommended Combody in, in, on the Lower East Side, which yep. was started by Cos Marte, who's, who was formerly incarcerated, who hired, who also hired formerly incarcerated trainers for his gym on the Lower East Side. And it's one thing, yes, he wants to, of course, get everyone who walks through the doors of Combody into shape and to use the prison style workouts that he became accustomed to while he was locked up. But the, the other part of his business is educating 
people, not just the folks who work for him, but anyone who's interested on how do we reform criminal justice, but more importantly, how do we prevent recidivism of people who were formerly incarcerated? So it's, a, it's again, it's super interesting. I'd love to hear more about, again, the work that you're doing. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to meet an amazing entrepreneur named Zhou or Chinghua, and he he never had any, he didn't have interactions personally with the criminal justice system, but growing up, all of his friends ended up incarcerated and in jail, and he was like, what is going on? These are, the, these are the guys that I play basketball with. What is happening in our communities? And so he founded an organization called Emilio, and Emilio focuses first on prison communication. So they have hundreds of thousands of people across the country using Emilio to send letters to their loved ones who are currently incarcerated. And then he moved to phone calls. So in many states, phone calls can cost up to a dollar a minute, literally bankrupting families just because they're trying to have a 20, 30 minute conversation with their loved one who's in jail. So this is both bad for families because it's costing them enormous sums of money, but it's also bad for our whole society. If you don't re retain close ties to your community, it's that much harder to re-enter your community once you get out of prison or jail. And so Emilio launched this amazing free telephone product. They also launched this amazing free video communications project. So obviously during the COVID-19 lockdowns, people who were imprisoned weren't seeing their loved ones because they couldn't have visitors. And they actually have video communications, free video communications for people who are incarcerated. And so Emilio was just doing sort of incredible things, both to make the current the current lifestyle of those who are incarcerated more positive, but then also to reduce recidivism. And they've also introduced an education product so that folks can get their GEDs or their college education, whatever sort of educational materials they need, again, they can do, through, do so through Emilio. And I was lucky enough, again, to be introduced to Zoe, and I had a conversation with Reed, and Reed is deeply passionate about racial justice. And he was like, this is an incredible way that a not-for-profit is using technology at scale mm -hmm. to help the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are incarcerated. So Reed committed a $3 million, three-year grant to Emilio. I joined their board of directors, and it's just been so wonderful to see their super impressive growth and to be like a tiny piece of, of what they're doing. In their That's tremendous. And I imagine that going back to corollaries, if someone who is formerly incarcerated now has their GED, has their college education, has on-the-job training, I imagine that has a direct impact on preventing that person from re-entering the prison system because, again, they have the tools of how to re-enter their community as well as to provide a living once they're out of jail. Is that an accurate assessment? Absolutely. The statistics and data about, about prison and jail also just show you that prison is essentially a tax on poor people in this country. It's something like half of folks who are incarcerated had no income the year before they were imprisoned. And so we need to provide people economic opportunity to exactly your point so that they never go back into the prison system. Again, it's like the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. It helps these individuals, but it also helps our entire country. It is expensive to incarcerate people, and we would just have a much better and more economically prosperous society if we had less people locked up. Excellent. Excellent. And I know it's, a, it's an incredibly compelling point. For the people who are listening, who want to learn more about Emilio and your work with regards to criminal justice reform, where can they go? Where can they learn more? Definitely check out Emilio.org and look up again, their founder, Zoe or Chingwa is so incredible and inspiring. Happy to have as many supporters and followers in this movement as we can. Excellent. And one last question as we're wrapping up our conversation, going back to your work with Reed, it's, it's very funny. I've heard this quote from Reed Hoffman many times. 
And I would love to get your perspective, your personal perspective on it and what it means to you. If you are not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've launched too late. What does that mean to Aria Finger? First, it's terrifying. No, I think that what it means is the best way to improve your product is not to sit in a, a four-walled room with your team and think about what would make it better and improve it and do everything you can without customer feedback. What it actually means is that the only way you can improve your product is to put it out in the world. So if you're Emilio, that means you have to talk to currently incarcerated folks. If you're doing a startup that serves moms, like you got to get your product into the hands of moms because the only way to make your product better is by actually talking to customers. So I think it's giving you permission to be embarrassed by your, your first iteration of the product, knowing that the sooner you get your product into the hands of consumers, the sooner you'll be able to make it 10x, 100x better because they're giving you all this great feedback that you never had before. Excellent. It's it's the, I borrow this from another entrepreneur, Craig Dubitsky, who was on my uh, podcast a couple- Craig's great too. Craig, Craig's great. And his whole concept is there's no fear of missing out. There's only fear of not trying. And it's funny, like now that I talk to yourself and I talk to other business leaders, it's all about overcoming this. The fear of not trying is a lot stronger than regret. It's a lot stronger than missing out. So to your point, again, if you have a minimum viable product, whether it's yourself or it's your startup, go to where the people who you want to consume that product are to try it. And yeah, it might be a little embarrassing, but again, that feedback, that constructive feedback is going to help you make that final product even better. Because again, to your point, you're not in a room, you're actually interacting with folks to give you that, that real-time feedback. So again, you're able to refine. Actually, I do have one, one last question. It's, it's similar to the Emilio question and criminal justice. For anyone who's listening here, and perhaps they're, they're working a, a nine to five or corporate job, or they're very busy starting up a business, how can they do good? How can they work towards making an impact? What are some of your easy steps for them to, again, similar to what we said at the beginning of the conversation about just simply reaching out to someone who said they lost a job, like, hey, this job came across my desk, check it out. What are some, yeah, so what are some of those easy steps for that person who's interested in giving back and doing good? Sure. I will be a little cliche and I will say vote in local elections. Everyone gets out to vote every four years, but voting in local primaries, local mayor elections, local school board elections, your vote actually goes a lot further. It's like there's not as many people voting. And so we need you out there. And I would say the same thing for local NGOs. Big national NGOs absolutely need your time and attention and your donations. But even a $50 donation can go so far for a local NGO who's just working in your sort of local community. So I would just say try to be as local as possible and you'll you'll be met with open arms. Excellent. Yes. A lot of these micro conversations about what's being taught in school, for instance, that's happening again at the local level. And Absolutely. to your point, Aria, it's super important that you voice you voice your vote at the ballot box. Yes, in the general election, you live in New York City, you know what the primary numbers are versus the general election, especially this last mayoral race. So the people who are choosing the candidate of the general election more or less are those super ardent supporters of that specific candidate. And then once the general election comes and the person that you didn't want to win wins and, and they don't represent what you care about, 
it all starts again earlier on in the process at the primary yeah. and again to getting your voice heard. Aria, tremendous conversation, tremendous insights. I really do appreciate your time. I imagine I'm speaking on behalf of my listeners. They appreciate your time. We'll definitely check out Emilio, the work that you've been that you've been up to, both do something and Reed Hoffman and criminal justice reform. Can we put your website, ariafinger.com, in the in the post? Put it on up there. Thanks so put- much. It was lovely to chat. Yes, likewise. And again, if anyone has any questions for Aria, again, her website is the best place to find that information. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast on your favorite listening platform or subscribe to the show Substack so you never miss an episode.